Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. We have a special treat today, very eminent lawyer from the beautiful charm city of Baltimore, Mr. Dave Herrick. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thanks, Bob. Uh, Dave is an alumnus of the University of Maryland Law School with whom I worked centuries ago and has gone on to considerable prominence. He's been a big shot in the Maryland Trial Lawyers Organization, and he has traveled truly around the world and around the country being involved in important cases. Let's talk a little bit about your practice, Dave. What is it that you do? Well, I mainly do malpractice cases against medical professionals that violate the standard of care, and I also do a lot of auto accidents. I occasionally do some sexual abuse cases. Uh, once in a while, I do some boating negligence cases. I try to practice law different, I think, than than most people. I don't advertise at all. I really have a practice that's client-centric. And my theory is that if I take care of every client and treat every case the same, in for a penny, in for a pound, I've got a client for life. And uh, it's amazing how that has panned out and worked for me. I've never had to advertise. And I have clients that I represented you know, 10, 15 years ago that call me back for anytime one of their friends and, and neighbors gets in something. The best part of that, that for me is I like my clients. So if I like my clients, odds are when they send me a friend or a relative, I'm going to like them too. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy as can be as a lawyer. Well, that is a very I nice found situation. my calling. So you are licensed in Maryland and elsewhere or just well, Maryland? Well, I am licensed in Maryland, but I do do a lot of cases sort of all over the country. I went to Jerry Spencer's Trial Lawyers College back in 2012. Why don't you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury about Jerry and about the trial lawyer? Well, Jerry what? Spence is a, has the unique distinction of not having lost a civil case since 1969. And he is... That's better than me. He's of some note, better than me too. Uh, he's of some note uh, in that uh, he's done a lot of prominent cases, your list may know who he is because he commentated a lot during the OJ trial. He's famous for wearing a fringe leather jacket. and A colorful frontier man. <laughs> very much so. And so he, he kind of became prominent and has a sort of his own style in how you present cases. And he very generously donated his ranch uh, to an or, organization and he formed. And that's in Jackson, Wyoming? Well, it's in it's it's outside of Du Bois, Wyoming, okay. not, not too okay. far. And um, he set up a college to teach people in the method in which he believes in. And the method is very openly and honest about how you put on a case, uh, putting on all its warts, trying to essentially recreate what the client went through in front of the jury so the jury really understands what's going on. And so you apply and they take, they have two sessions a year and it's 25 civil lawyers and 25 criminal lawyers. And it's, I mean, it's interesting. You go out there, you live in a room, probably half the size of the dorm room you had if you went to college and uh, you help uh, do the dishes, you help clean the bathrooms and he doesn't care who you are or how successful you are. He sort of breaks you down a little bit. Uh, and then you learn a whole new method of trying cases. I like to say it adds, you know, eight or nine more arrows to your quiver. And it's based a lot on psychodrama. If any of your listeners have gone through psychodrama, it's based on that idea. What is psychodrama? So psychodrama is is sort of uh, putting your client through reenaction back into the particular situation they're going through. So it's it's very hard. People don't like to talk to them about emotional things that happen to them, particularly if they're painful and scarring. And so when you ask a client, well, how did that make you feel? 
it's very hard for the client to be in touch with their feelings and then convey that to you because ultimately in front of a jury, it's important to do that or a jury's not going to understand and really be able to evaluate what the client went through. So a psychodrama, you bring a psychodramatist in. Fortunately, we have one of the best in the country, Don Clarkson, who originally started with Jerry Spence back in the 70s. So who when lives you in... say we, do you mean that you own this person or the state of oh, Maryland? Of course not. No, how, no. How, how we, is we as the citizens of Maryland, Don Clarkson is a, is a Prince George's County resident. And he is one of the best psychodramatists in the country. And he it's nice to have him so close because we can bring him in and work with him on cases. And he sits down with the client and other lawyers trained in this method. And we basically try to reenact what the client went through so the client becomes more in touch with the emotions that they were feeling in the time. And those emotions become more available to them. And since I've come back, I've had amazing successes in arguing damages in cases because I put my client on the stand and I get them what we call in the moment. And they really relive what happened to them in front of the jury. And the beauty of that is there's no question that it's honest. If somebody's reliving what happened to them, you can tell this isn't an act. This isn't a put on. This isn't somebody that's trying to, you know, game the system. You can really see the emotion they went through. And it's a very effective way of putting a case on. And it really is, you know, has been revolutionary for my practice and my clients. So do you know what his academic background is, that he's a psychodramatist? Well, I, you know, he's, it's, there's a method. It, it's, it starts back with a guy named Moreno, who wrote or sort of the original came up with the whole idea of psychodrama and psychotherapy. Uh, and it really was developed in the therapeutic world to get people in touch with emotions and those kind of things. And then sort of adapted by Don Clarkson and Jerry Spence as a, as a means and a, a way of trying cases. And as an example, as, a, as sort of a funny example, the, the idea is that when you put people back in the moment that you can tell whether or not they're telling the truth. So there is a case that a, a trial lawyer in Texas by the name of, of, of Rafe Foreman had, and uh, it was a police brutality case. And in this case, there was an allegation that the police officers used too much force and they strangled the person and, and ultimately killed him. And so the trial lawyer's college trained lawyer, Rafe Foreman, puts the police on the stand and asks the officer to come off the stand and reenact what he did to his client. And the lawyer acted as if he was client. And he said to the police officer, you know, who could we use for the other people who were there? Well, they were in the room. So they brought the other police up and, you know, here, sure enough, they reenact this thing. And the jury can see they're using too much force and they can't help but do what they did because that's what they did. So, of course, the defense lawyer in the case thinks it's this big plaintiff scam and, you know, it was over dramatized by the plaintiff. So that was a Friday over the weekend. He decides, the defense lawyer, to reenact it himself. And so he the next day, this is the old OJ glove thing, right? So the next day he comes, uh, he comes and he puts the police officer on. But now the defense lawyer plays the role of the victim. And the police put him down, show him exactly what they did. And as they have him in this position, the defense lawyer says, get off of me. I That's can't enough. breathe. <laughs> At which time it became very clear that these police officers were using too much force. They yeah. got to see this thing reenacted twice. So I've used it in when you are cross-examining someone, right? It's very easy if somebody fabricates a story to memorize that story and tell that story. But if you get that person off the stand and you have them reenact it, one of two things happen. They don't know how to do it because that's not really what happened. Or amazingly enough, they actually reenact what happened 
the way it happened, which of course helps your case because you know the story they're going to tell is fabricated. And I've done that in court a few times, where amazingly, a you know a defendant has said, "Oh, I pulled the wheel to the right in their story," and then when they act it out, they turn the wheel to the left, and you can tell, okay, all right, they're obviously making something up here, and the truth. So, comes how out. do you overcome the objections of defense lawyers that somehow this is? Not the same thing as when you're in a car. Well, it'd be fine if we had a car simulator or that kind of stuff. Well, it, again, it's it's made for illustrative purposes. And if you can get the witness to to set, you literally set the scene in the courtroom. You ask to pull the witness off the courtroom and you say, okay, well, where's the car? Where are you seated? You add, you know, you take a courtroom chair, you put it next to him. Say, where is, you know, where's this person seated? Where's the other car? So you get the person to describe the room as best as you can. And, you know, the objection is you're leaving it up to the witness. And if you say to the witness, okay, is this, is this a fair representation of where we are? And Amazingly, judges are very receptive to this because it it, it helps a jury understand the case. It's got to you know? be more entertaining, too. Absolutely. Right. And so anything that's going to illuminate how how what actually happened happened and make it more than just a talking back and forth is going to be helpful to the jury, helpful to the judge, helpful to ultimately resolving. Have you ever seen that technique used adversely for your client? In other words, someone gets off the stand, has told an implausible story, and then manages to depict it physically and has it come across well. It has never been a problem for me because, quite frankly, I do it with my client in advance. And if my client reenacts a different story than what they've told, I'm dropping the case. Understandable. And it's one of the things that I do for clients to see sort of where they are. And, you know, obviously, I don't want, I always want to be wearing the white hat. I always, my dad was a victim of malpractice. That's why I came into this field. And I always want to be able to sleep at night. And and I, I don't know how defense lawyers do it. I admire them because they have to do a job and a duty. But, you know, they don't get to pick their clients. You know, they get assigned cases by the insurance carriers. And whether their clients are, have violated standard care or not, they have to put on defense. I never have to do that. As long as I pick and like the people I represent, and they have legitimate cases, I'm always on the side of angels. I sleep very well at night, Bob. You know, I feel similarly. So Jerry Spence sounds like he's been a huge part of how you've approached your practice. Well, I mean, since it is revolutionary. I mean, since I've went, you know, to to trial lawyers college, I, I... and when I did you say you started that? I, I'm sorry. I went in. I went in the summer of 2012. Okay. And I've had amazing successes. Sure. Uh, since I since I've come back, and I do use it in some way, shape, or form in every case. And I I, I just think it's very unfortunately for instance in a deposition, right? A lot of lawyers tell their clients, just say yes or no, just say yes or no, because they're afraid that the client's not going to do something, you know, say the wrong thing, and they, I can win this case as long as you don't screw it up, Mr. They will Mrs. volunteer client. something that's harmful. Right. So I think the reason, honestly, for that is I think to, on some le- some respect, it's lazy lawyering. It's not spending enough time with your client preparing your client. I look at a deposition as my client's opportunity to tell their story. I want them to talk. You know, when they say, you know, how, how are you feeling – I tell my clients in preparation for a deposition, I say, okay, look, I, I want, we, we talk about some of the ways that their injury affected their life. And I try to come up with, uh, by talking to them, maybe five or six narrative stories that, that display how they're feeling. And I like to, and I tell them, I say, look, it's, it's almost like if you ever played Hearts or Pinochle or, uh, you know, Uno, you've got this deck of story cards in your hand. And when they ask you a story about, hey, they ask you, well, how did that back pain affect you? You look at your deck of cards and, okay, the third card is 
a good story to tell about how that affected. Of course, all these things are real. And if you've done the psychodrama in advance or you've done some reenactments in advance, the client can very compellingly tell their story because it's real. You know, rather than just saying, well, you know, I was hurt. I was in pain, which means nothing. Those are amorphous concepts. But if you tell a story and explain what happened, then the jury begins to understand. And once they understand, jurors are very good at getting it right. I understand that part myself, having served on a jury. I was astonished how incredibly intelligent. And people cumulatively, when you have a group of them, somebody may have missed one thing, but somebody in your group of six or 12 invariably picked it up and they, oh, that reminds me kind of thing. So. Well, one of the things that I do when I teach clients to tell stories, and, and sometimes it's particularly hard. Can I quote you on that? You teach your clients to tell stories? Well, when I teach them how to tell stories, yeah. <laughs> so when I te- teach, and the stories are really their life experiences. Sure. So one of the, th- and it's particularly hard when you have teachers as clients because we're taught when we're trying to teach a lesson to people, right? We announce the conclusion to the lesson. Then we talk about the lesson. And during the lesson, we reemphasize that conclusion three or four times, right? And that's a very patronizing way to tell a story. I mean, you're really basically saying, I don't trust you listeners. You're too dumb to figure out what I'm talking about. And so I'm going to announce it to you. Well, there's some real problems with that. Okay, so I'll give you an example. I represented somebody in a a breast cancer case. Okay. And she was 24 and they misdiagnosed breast cancer. She ended up losing both of her breasts. And I was trying to mine her family for some stories about how she was as a person. And I started to talk uh, about her with her mother. And I said, you know, can you tell me any stories that, uh, you know, that stick out in your in your mind about her growing up? And her name was Elizabeth. And uh, she said, well, I remember this time, uh, I guess Elizabeth was about seven or eight years old. And uh, I, I took her to the store and I thought it was, this is when I'm going to teach her how to pay for something. And, and I got to tell you, Elizabeth, of all my kids, she's the most trustworthy and honesty and she's great at math and she pays attention. And so we're in this store and I gave her a $10 bill and she handed it to the clerk. And the clerk gave her back change for a 20. And she's so smart, she noticed it, even at that age. And she's so honest, she told the clerk, ma'am, you gave me change for a 20. And I don't want you to get in any trouble. And so she points it out, the clerk thanks. And I think to myself, boy, I'm really raising a good kid. Now, when you tell that story in front of a jury, because you've told them what to think, you take you as the listener and you take your bias and you put it at play. So when the jury hears that story, one of the people in the jury is going to say, well, of course, that's what she says. That's her mother. She's going to say that. Here's how you tell that story differently. You take out all the commentary. I say to her, look, tell me a story about Elizabeth growing up. Same story. But without the commentary and the conclusions, she says, I remember this time we're going to the store and I'm deciding to teach my daughter how to pay for something. I hand her a $10 bill and she hands it to the cashier and the cashier gives her change. She looks at it. She looks at me. She looks back at the cashier and she says, ma'am, I gave you a 10 and you gave me change for a 20. And the cashier thanks her. I'll never forget that. Same story. Now when the jury hears it, they draw their own conclusions. And juror two may draw the conclusion, she's good at math. Juror four and five may draw the conclusion, that kid's honest. Juror one may draw the conclusion, that is someone who pays attention even at an early age. Because the jurors draw their own conclusions, 
nobody can say, well, of course the mother's going to say that. It's the mother because she hasn't told them what to think. And now when another juror who's skeptical attacks that conclusion, the juror holds on to it as his or her own because it's their own conclusion. And they're much more likely to defend that conclusion rather than sit in the jury room and just discount it completely because her mother said something. So you want the storyteller to really be a fly on the wall, to just tell the facts and allow the jurors to develop their own conclusions. So they're not saying, my kid's wonderful, I raised them right. They just leave that to the jury to arrive at that conclusion. That's right. And if you're on the side of truth, if you represent the right side, if you represent somebody who's honest and telling the truth, that's why it's so important to only take cases that are legitimate, to not bring frivolous lawsuits. I cringe when people bring frivolous lawsuits because they hurt attorneys like you and I that don't. Uh, And so the defense can never do this. Right. Because all you're doing is telling the truth. All you're doing is telling the facts. And you can tell when somebody's telling the story. People have that sixth sense about them as to whether or not the story is hooey or whether it's something that's real. And that's the techniques that some of the stuff that I learned from Jerry. So is there any risk that the psychodrama would have an adverse effect on somebody? Somebody's been and I'm just using this as an example, sexually assaulted and they're bringing a lawsuit against the sexual assaulter or the school or the mall that let it happen. Is there a concern the things that they've managed to largely recover from will be brought back and cause them future problems? There is. And that's a great Mm -hmm. question. And that's why we bring in a professional to do the psychodrama. Okay, we don't do a reenactment on our own. Because we're not qualified if something were to go awry. Okay. When you have a professional there who's trained and is, you know, has a private practice and uses this technique, and it doesn't have to be Don Clarkson. I mean, there's other sure. people that are trained in the technique. Uh, and in order to be trained, it's a really long process. You've got to establish so many hours under a mentor, and it's almost like passing the bar to some extent, maybe even more intense. Okay. Um, so you've got a professional there who knows, and they spend some time with the person to see whether or not they're the candidate. You know, uh, if it's it's something like a physical injury, right? Mm. It's, it's, I will do reenactments with clients on a physical injury, or it's something that I kind of make some assessment that, okay, this isn't something that's deep, you know, it's not a sexual abuse case, let's say. Sure. I would never in a million years do a reenactment, a sexual abuse case, unless I had a professional there. Okay. And of course, we have a discussion with the psychodramatist afterwards is, hey, is this something that's too, too sensitive to bring up in, in court? And we also talk to the client. I, I had a mal, probably the first malpractice case I tried after I came back from, from Travelers College. I had a client who I wanted her to experience. Basically, she was going into surgery and she had a 40% chance of dying and she survived the surgery. And so the defense is like, what's the big deal? I mean, she survived. She's alive. Who cares? The fact that she wasn't able to spend the first 90 days with her child, uh, you know, during a, 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 a bonding period, which is very important as a parent, because their argument was, well, she gets along with her child now. So what's the damage? Right. So it was a zero offer case. And uh, we tried it in, in Baltimore County. And all along, I said to her, I said, look, I'm, I'm going to need you to go back to that moment that because they brought her daughter into her and she had to say goodbye you know, her baby, because she thought this may be the last time I see you. And I said, I need you to do that. And she said, no, I can't do that now. She said, I promise you when the time is right, I will. When I'm on the stand, I'll do it. And what I did is I did some other exercises of getting her into the moment. So one of the ways you get clients to do that is you you might say to them, I want you to relive a real, like 
one of your better memories with your dad or with your mom or in college. And then you practice getting them in the mindset of leaving the past tense and looking at it in the present tense. What's amazing, the human mind has an amazing ability when you're telling a story and you're really in the moment. One of the reasons I know that the person's in the moment is they will change the tenses to present tense. Interesting. Unconsciously, they do that. Sure. And that tells me, okay, they're there. You know, so they, I'm, I'm sitting in a chair and this happens and this happens and Bob walks in. You know, they don't say Bob walked in. And, you know, when you think about it, anytime you watch a movie or read a book, it's not in the past tense. It is in the past tense and you're watching it was recorded in the past tense. But, of course, all the actors are speaking the present tense. And so it's something called the Spielberg effect. You know, you suspend the disbelief that you're watching something on the screen and, you know, it, it comes in. And that's scripted in a movie, but it's not when you have somebody tell a story. So sure enough, time comes. I'm a little bit antsy because the first case I tried after trial was college, put her on the stand and I get her to that moment and she nails it, goes back in time. She's there. The emotion on her face is real. The pain on her face is real. Her voice is quivering. None of this is made up. This is what she went through. And of course, the jury came back with a number well in excess of the damage cap because they see it, even though the defense says, well, she's fine. She lived. Who cares? You know. So that's an example of how the technique really That's a great really example. Works, you know, so. So not to digress into all sorts of discussions of trial lawyer tactics, although this is a sort of practical and interesting one. There's a, 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 the idea of the reptile technique, David Ball and those. Do you think anything of that or do you utilize well, any components of that? Or I, is it part of, does Jerry Spence touch on that? Or well, how does that? It is a different technique. Um, and, and I think that it can be, it's a rather cynical technique. Um, I would agree. Uh, but it, it, it can be effective. And the, essentially the gist of the reptile technique, and I've been trained in the reptile technique sure. as well. I guess I'm a CLE junkie uh, for those listeners, continuing legal education. Any seminar that is put on on how to try cases, I gravitate to. Uh, I want to hear everything, what everyone has to say. I realize that, uh, you know, I stand on the shoulders of giants as a trial lawyer. I've learned by the collective wisdom of trial lawyers. I mean, w trial lawyer is really something I am proud to be. It is very. I feel the same way. It is very denigrated by society, but the truth is, we really are, in many respects, the last bastion between complete dominance by corporations complete and, and and all the great things trialers have done we have airbags and cars because of trialers you know how many people know someone whose life was saved by an airbag you know or a safety belt that's right or a safety belt and those things are not you know the benevolence of companies that want to provide safety devices you know those they had to be forced to put those things in in cars so it's something that i'm i'm very very proud to do as a trial lawyer, is to be a person who is trying to hold people accountable, trying to do the right thing. As you thing. say, you wear the white hat. I try, for sure. Uh, anyway, back to, to the reptile technique is, uh, it, it, the idea is, it's sort of a cynical view of jurors, that the jurors are self-centered and are not gonna care about your client unless you teach the jurors that this could happen to them. And so the idea is you try to talk about safety rules in a general sense. And when you talk about safety rules in a general sense and why they're important, you're hoping that the juror will make some analogy to their own life, you know, to say, look, rules are important. We have to follow rules. And, you know, when people don't follow rules, bad consequences happen. And yes, I don't have breast cancer. I'm a man. And yes, I'm probably not going to get breast cancer being a man. But this kind of thing could happen to me if somebody doesn't follow the rules. And therefore, 
I'm willing to understand the, the greater point. I do think it has some merit for sure. But I, I also think that when you are wearing the white hat, I have a tremendous faith in the jury system. If the case is presented right, if the case is presented in a non-patronizing way, if you have an honest client who can who is in touch with his or her feelings and can portray those feelings when they're testifying. And of course, you have the medicine behind you. I mean, you hear all this stuff about frivolous malpractice cases. There aren't frivolous malpractice cases. They don't survive. I it's know that. nonsense. Any lawyer that's going to throw 100 grand into a case that's frivolous is going to be bankrupt sooner than later. You know, you only take when I take a case, I am right. They are wrong. They're lying. They're paying lawyers to shade or paying experts to say things they know aren't true. So that's what's fun as a lawyer. You take a doctor's deposition and that doctor's infinitely smarter than me. But on that little sliver of medical knowledge that has to do with this case, I've spent a ridiculous amount of time and I can tangle with him head to head or her head to head on that small issue. That's fun for me. Uh, so one of the great pleasures of being a trial lawyer. So one of the other things, and I had not intended this to be a discourse on trial techniques, but I think it's absolutely a good thing. Um, I happen to be at a seminar. I'm, I'm the head of the Prince George's County Bar Association Tort Law Committee. And a friend of yours and a friend of mine, Bob Zarbin, who passed away last year, a wonderful lawyer and a wonderful man. A great loss to not only humanity, but the bar as well. Absolutely. I mean, he was a guy who would take whatever time you needed to address whatever you were interested in and had very interesting thoughts. But I was sitting in a seminar and I was one of the presenters with him and he started talking about you. And, you know, Dave and I worked together many years ago, very briefly, really. But that's how we've become friends across the ensuing however many, 22, 23 years. But he started talking about your deposition preparation. And just for the ladies and gentlemen who listen to this show, you know, you file a lawsuit and each side exchanges information. And at some point in time, you sit down with a, with a, a court stenographer and you are asked questions by the other side. And the questions aren't just about your case. They're about your background. They're about a host of other things. And I know because I spend a lot of time with trial lawyers that most people do not put a great deal of preparation into depositions for their clients. And the thing Bob Zarbin had said is that you did the most exhaustive preparation of anybody he knew, and he thought that was invaluable. And we only have a couple minutes, but if you could just discuss that, why you do it, what you do, and what effect it has. All right. Remember, the premise is that I'm right on the medicine. Okay. okay? Or I'm not bringing the case. Correct. And so they hire some expert. Uh, and sometimes they hire, quote unquote, very credentialed experts, academics who are, you know, surgeons, but also sit on the faculty of a university. They write textbooks. That's right. They write textbooks and articles. And I am a little bit crazy because I know that they can't lie in a peer reviewed textbook and they can't lie in a peer reviewed article. And so what I do is I get I get their CV. And if it's 100 pages. I read every single article and every single textbook they have, and I, I take them out. I put little yellow stickies on everything they said that supports my case. And when I start their deposition, I line them up on the table and I pull up the first one. I say, do you agree with this statement? Well, I don't know if I do. Well, that's interesting because you wrote it. Here it is, you know, and then you go through this and, and the truth comes out. But to do that, you've got to spend a ridiculous time. Now, what defense counsel started doing is when I sue a defendant, they go to the health libraries and they check out all the books that these guys have written. 
okay, what makes it a little harder, but it doesn't stop me. I'm going to get them anyway. Sometimes, and it's, it's interesting, I probably shouldn't share this in case defense counsel is listening, but if I have an out-of-state deposition, I fly out there a week in advance. And I, every one of these guys has an ego. And if they're on the faculty of that law, of that medical school, they're going to make sure that med library has got everything they've written. Oh, you they're, bet. And so I get a chance to read it all. That takes a tremendous amount of time. It's one of the reasons I like to practice by myself as a solo, because if I had partners and I said, hey, Bob, I'm going to fly to Texas because I want to read everything this guy wrote for a week. Some you know, a partner would say, what are you, crazy? You're a good lawyer. You can take the deposition. You don't need to spend a week. But I find, and I have flipped experts in cases where they've said, this is the case. And then I present all the things they wrote. And they say, you know what? You're probably right. One of my favorite things is when you have them go through things and they can't distinguish what they've written previously and what somebody else wrote in their textbook. And they ultimately sort of fall apart into a little pool of mud. It, what, what amazes me is how I had a case one time. I won't say who the doctor is very quickly. But I told defense counsel advance, I'm going to crush this guy. I can't believe you're using him. I've killed him in other cases. I've destroyed him on cross. And he said in this case, I believe X and I would never do Y. And I literally had 10 depositions in which he said, I don't believe in X. I would do Y. And I, he goes through this and I get him to testify. And I ask him this question and it's on video. It's a riot. I said, are there any answers you'd like to change, doctor, before the fun begins? And he looked at himself like, no, of course not. Then I pull the depositions out and I start reading these things and I'm looking at defense counsel and he's in a state of shock. Like, how can this guy say this stuff? I said, I told you I was going to destroy him. How can you hire somebody who's so intellectually dishonest? They don't even know what they said. This guy testifies so well. He's in court more than I am. He's he's done more depositions than I am. I'm a lawyer. So that's fun. So- I guess what we're saying, and we're probably going to be ending the show here, is exhaustive preparation coupled with a great belief in the merits of your particular case and your clients and intensive preparation of your clients to relive the events that were so traumatic for them is the formula for your success. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to thank you very much, Dave, for appearing on the show today. As always, any of the opinions that were voiced on this show are not the opinions of Howard County Community College. And we are not providing legal advice in our discussions here. If you have an individual legal problem, please make sure you contact a lawyer who's experienced in that particular area. It's Bob Clark from Everyday Law. Thank you very much.